0: This week, we have really been studying the inner aspects of Christianity as well as the outer aspects. But most of all, we've been focusing on being authentic and genuine. You know, if there's anything that causes shame to the cause of Christ, it's those who are inconsistent in between what they proclaim and the way they live. It is inconsistency in what we say or what we pledge allegiance to and then show by our behavior what our true allegiance is to. And so we've been trying to eliminate or erase any discrepancy between our claims to be followers of Jesus Christ and really imitating Him. We've been trying to understand how important it is for us to have an inner life that expresses itself in our outer deeds and how important it is to, get, to make sure that those are Uh, those aspects are clear and solid so that we will be successful and not vacillating in our Christian commitment. We talked last night about James 4 and verse 8, a Bible that tells us about a double-minded man. It says that a double-minded man is supposed to cleanse his hands from sin and purify his heart. That means to make single. Why? Because that's What is expected by God is for us to be genuine and authentic in our behavior and our deeds are not supposed to be sinful and our heart is supposed to be pure and anything else other than that is hypocrisy. In James 1.8, it tells us that this double-mindedness is evidenced in instability in our Christian endeavor. It says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So sometimes if we wonder, why we're not as stable as we should be. Perhaps we should examine our deeds and examine our hearts as we've been trying to, looking into the word of God this week to see what manner of people we are and go away and not forget what we are. Tonight, though, I wanna talk about, uh, if you will, not necessarily the other side of the coin, but I want to make sure that we're balanced and make sure we understand that there are two ingredients to acceptable worship. The bible says in john 4 verse 23 and 24 that god is spirit and though the and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth now there are many commentators that say that that's not two different ingredients of acceptable worship they will say correct spirit means basically with our spirit in other words a man must worship with spirit and according to truth well i don't see any discrepancy in identifying that whenever he says in spirit there, he's talking about with our spirit, that is with the authentic or genuine aspect of our inner life. In other words, worshiping God in our spirit, and that means with proper emotion, then truth according to God's word, John 17, 17, I see no discrepancy in understanding that that passage is teaching both are elements that are needed in order to have acceptable worship before God. But there are some people today who are saying spirit is more important than truth. And we know that that's not truth. that is unbalanced and it is just as improper to put that kind of a spin on that passage as it is for people to say, all we need is a form and not having any real heart in it that that's more important too. We've been showing all week that the acceptable sacrifice must be both inner and outer in order to be acceptable. We've been showing that like in 1st Corinthians the 13th chapter verse 1 through 3 How important it is to have a heart that does things proper from a proper motive in order for it to be acceptable to God? In that passage, he's talking about love and says "Yea, Though I give my body to be burned and have not charity. It profits nothing in other words having the proper attitude when one sacrifices must be necessary in order for God to view that as a genuine and authentic sacrifice because it profits nothing. Oh, is it a great sacrifice? Yes, it's a great sacrifice. But many people have died for country or for honor or for for themselves and not really for God. And God says, hey, listen, giving the body, making a great sacrifice is not the point. It's whether it's done both inwardly and outwardly in a proper way. To really focus our minds on this, I want you to look at one of the last book, the last book in the Old Testament. If you have it in your pew Bible, please open it up to Malachi. The book of Malachi, he is basically chastising the priests because the priests are corrupt. Let's just be straight about it. The priests are corrupt. They are doing wrong things. They are, they are even wondering in themselves if it's worth it to serve God. Notice how the Holy Spirit reveals their hearts in some of this passage. We're going to start reading with verse 6 of Malachi, the first chapter. Notice, as a son honors his father and a servant his master, then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? In other words, he's saying, in your earthly culture, you honor those who have some authority over you. Where do I fit in? Where's my respect? Where's my honor? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? In other words, he's saying, priest, you've not honored me. And they said, wow, how did we do that? Verse 7, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. In other words, they were looking at what was going to be on the altar, and they say, it's going to be burned up anyway. Therefore, the quality of the sacrifice doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Notice he goes on down to name this. Verse 8, But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Now, notice he's challenging them here. He's saying, you say, sacrifice is a sacrifice. Since it's going to be burned up, why not offer the lame and the sick and the blind and offer them to God? God says, because the quality of what you're offering to me shows your lack of respect for me, is his point. He said, you're offering me sick and blind and lame sacrifices expecting. Are you offering sacrifices? Yes. Are they quality sacrifices? No. Because of that, others dishonor me. That's what he's saying. He's challenging these people. He says, listen, what you're doing is bringing disrespect to me. Disrespect and dishonor to me. Would your governor be pleased with it? No. Notice verse nine. And now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? In other words, he's asking a rhetorical question, expecting the right answer. In other words, he's not expecting them to wonder, I wonder what the answer is. The answer is supplied. No, God is not respected by what you're offering. Verse 10, listen. Oh, that there would be one among you, who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Now, first of all, I want to get this really clear one more time. Let's answer the question. Were they offering something? Were they offering something? The answer is yes. You know, we're not talking about people here. We're not talking about atheists. We're not talking about people not worshiping. We're talking about somebody who was worshiping. They were offering something to God. Yes. You would say they were going through the acts. Was God pleased with what they were offering? No, no. He was not. He was not accepting their sacrifice at all. In fact, he said, you are uselessly kindling a fire on that altar. I'm not accepting your worship. Not accepting it at all. You notice what he goes on to say, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For nigh my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 12. But you are profaning it, profaning it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, the food is to be despised. How tiresome it is. Notice their attitude in verse 13. And you also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring that which is taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. You bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and bows it but sacrifices the blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. In other words, basically he's saying, there are Gentile nations that fear me and you guys are treating me worse than you treat your own governor. Would you offer that to your governor and you offer it to God? How sad, how sad, how disrespectful. In fact, he uses a very unusual word here. He uses the word profane. The word profane means to take something holy, and use it in an unholy way, or to treat it in an unholy way, an unspecial way. We use this word whenever we talk about profanity. That is where we take the Lord's name and use it in an unholy way. We're not really addressing God in prayer. We're just using his name when we hit that thumb with the hammer, or whenever we use God's name in a profane way. That's why we call it profanity. It's not used in its proper sense. Well, the Lord says, I want to be respected among the nations. And you guys aren't respecting me because of your attitude about the offering and the offering itself. There are many other uh, points here in the book of Malachi. And, uh, you know, Jesus continually in the New Testament focused upon these, this, uh, this hypocritical attitude on the part of worshipers as well. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But, As I said, we're gonna look at both sides of a coin here tonight. We're gonna look at both sides of it. Because whenever it comes to acceptable worship, as I said, there are two elements to acceptable worship, and some have gone too far the other way. They have gone to what we call emotionalism. Now what is emotionalism? Well, emotionalism is just as biased as formalism, if you will, in that it goes so far that it believes that somehow the emotion itself is what we're after, that an emotion is what we're after. And that's what worship is all about, is just generating a certain emotion amongst us. And then if we can get to that place, then oftentimes the the ends justify the means and we get this emotion about our religion and emotion is all that it is. Emotion is an end of itself. Well, tonight, that's not true either. That's not true. That is just as wrong as formalism, doing something without the right attitude or doing something for an emotion without the right objective as well. Both of them are just as wrong. And I think we need to really identify here what we're talking about. Let's examine emotions and what the Bible has to say about them and how they are sometimes in this world we go to two extremes. And yes, I do believe this applies to us in a very real sense. What we've been talking about this week is change. And sometimes people look at what happens in the church about our worship and they said, our worship needs to change. Now sometimes they're talking about the form and That can't be changed. True worship is true worship period John 4 23 and 24 It's either acceptable or it's not acceptable the form is either right or wrong. You're either imitating what happened the night Jesus was betrayed or you're not That's just all there is to it But sometimes they're talking about the attitudes Sometimes they're talking about the attitude that offering is made and sometimes that does need to change but sometimes they go so far as to say, well the attitude is more important than the form, and that's wrong, that is just as wrong. You go too far one way or the other, two forms are two extremes, just because it's extreme doesn't make it right. Sometimes the truth really is a combination of both of these ideas, and that's what we wanna show tonight, is that some people worship emotion. You know whenever you talk about dating someone, I've heard some people, they say, well, you know, I don't know if I love them. And whenever they're so immature, you begin to talk to them about infatuation, you talk to them about friendship, and your kids come and they want, they want their, the, some of these issues sorted out. I don't know how I feel about this person. And, and, and I said, well, how would you feel if that person didn't love you? And oftentimes that sorts it out real quick. Well, you know, I wouldn't love them. Then I say, well, then you're not in love with them. <laughs> you know? You're not in love with them. The Bible says a friend loves at all times. Uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend, you know? In other words, a friend, you like whenever they're, they're supporting you, and you like whenever they're, they're uh, chastising you or correcting you. And You know, that's what the friend loves at all times and whenever we love somebody It's not just conditioned on their behavior. God loves us while we were yet enemies. The Bible says in Romans the fifth chapter That's the kind of love mature love is shown. Oh does God love us? Oh, yes, he loves us. Will he accept us in our sin not on your life? God wants us to repent we've learned that this week Acts 17 30 God commands all men everywhere to repent Well, if God commands me to repent if he's critical, then he must not love me. No, that's wrong. God loves you But he demands you repent you see and then whenever it comes to relationships and and things like that People sometimes only want one kind of relationship. They only want love. They only want peace They only want joy and anything that causes them to maybe be reflective, or maybe be remorseful or maybe have other feelings They don't really think that that's proper in the church well, my friends, whenever we sing songs of praise to God, sometimes those songs of praise are joyful in that they express the hope that we have in heaven. But if somebody dies, as was ha- we've had happen here in this congregation in the last week, sometimes we have grief. And sometimes we sing songs of mourning being not in our heavenly home. Sometimes we as a congregation can appropriately sing the blues Because that's the authentic way we feel at this moment if a leader dies Is it proper to go and sing the fastest possible song? You know, there are some people that just don't think worship is happening unless that pedal is to the metal And we sing that song as fast as we can sing it. Have you met those brethren? In fact, they sing it so fast. You don't even know what words you're saying They try to sing songs fast, they say, worship's gotta be fast, it's gotta be quick, and it's gotta go, go, go. Sometimes it's appropriate for us to slow down and sing songs of soberness and sing songs of longing in an appropriate slow fashion because it needs to be authentic and real. This is what I'm talking about tonight. Sometimes we have people who judge worship as to whether it's exciting. And they seem to be excitement is all they're shooting for. And that is not appropriate according to the scriptures. Sometimes they want a better felt than told truth. They want just, just, just get everything, you know. And other brethren, they're just not in touch with their emotions at all. And anything that's emotional, they get to feeling uncomfortable about because emotions are out of control. What is the truth then on this? Well, emotions have a scriptural role in the life of the Christians, and the Bible speaks of it. Yet whenever emotions become the object of worship, we're in grave danger as well. So let's talk more in detail about this. In the scriptures, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 chapter and verse 40, that worship is to be conducted in a decent and orderly fashion. That is, in a, in a fashion that's appropriate. To the assembly. Now, sometimes decently and in orderly is different even for different cultures. Now, Glenn, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, throughout history, the church hasn't had clocks, especially digital clocks, or clocks that are set by the atomic clock. (laughs) Throughout history, think about it. The church existed for uh, a thousand, over a thousand years without literally timekeeping pieces. But when did they assemble? Well, they assembled to break bread on the first day of the week. The Bible says for them to tarry one for another until they're all assembled there. They didn't all show up within five minutes. Now, brother and I've been at some places that five minutes the the audience was empty. I mean, there wasn't anybody there and within five minutes if you dropped your pencil in the hall, you better step back because you're gonna get trampled if you try to pick it up. There is a rush of Christians in that door just You could feel a breeze they create a breeze and whenever services are over, it's just the biggest rush to get out We seem to be so precise But you know, you can't take that concept everywhere To the churches in Africa, those brethren assemble and they start singing before they get there and whoever shows up, they start singing. And then they wait till everybody gets there and they're all singing until everybody gets there. That's their culture and that's the way they do it. But you know, decently in order there and decently in order here might be two different things. We might consider somebody that starts a song before services started to be a little out of place. "Whoa, Whoa, I didn't know services started. And it might be disruptive. You see, it has to do with its culture. Some people are a lot more easygoing in some places than others. But the Bible does tell us to have certain appropriate things. He says, listen, I want it done decently and in order. I don't want it to be raucous. I don't want it to be rowdy. I don't want it to be out of line. A service that does not reflect honor and respect for God. The Bible tells us whenever we though have worship that it sometimes can be so formalistic that it lacks emotion at all. We sing songs in such a deadpan, mechanical way that the way and the attitude with which we sing that song has absolutely no relevance to its message or to its lyrics at all. You know? I remember singing that song, Come we that love the Lord, and let our joy abound. You know? And and, and everything... It sounded like a horrible song, like it was something that was just horrible. And stand up for Jesus and revive us again. How many of us have heard revive us again sung like a funeral march? That's just so out of character. The world is watching. When they come to worship, they look at the words because it's the first time they look at them. And they look at those words and they look at us and if they see a discrepancy, They think that it's hypocrisy. And maybe it's just because we've heard that song for the last 30 years of our life. Maybe it's just old to us. We need to be careful in our worship to make sure that our emotion is fitting the songs that we're singing. We need to have it as being a proper, proper and decent and in an orderly way whenever we do choose the song. Now, Terry, I'm going to tell this, because I've often used this point here. <laughs> Whenever I first started teaching, I mean, we were young and doing different things. I remember it was one of either the second or third lesson that I ever gave. I gave it on true worship in Cottage Grove, Oregon. On a Lord's Day morning, and Terry got up and led the invitation song. Oh, why not tonight? Now, that's not necessarily bad, but I was going, why not this morning? <laughs> you know? Now, it just kind of, it fits. But you know, brother, we need to sing songs that are appropriate to what's being said, to what is being talked about. It is appropriate, song leaders, to ask the teacher what he's teaching on and seeing if your songs can match the message that's going to be given that morning. That enhances worship. It enhances focus. It gets our minds properly addressing what's going to be talked about that morning. In, in Matthew, the 15th chapter, verse 7, you probably all knew we were going to this passage, but in Matthew 15, notice what Jesus said in verse 7 and 8. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines of precept of men. If it applies then, it applies now. Vain means empty, emptily, or hollowly. And he says, it's just like in the Old Testament. I wish that they would not have ever kindled the fire at all. In loving and serving God, in Matthew, the 22nd chapter, in Matthew 22, it involves our total being in worship. In Matthew 22, and starting with verse 37, he says, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is a great foremost commandment. And the second like it into it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God wants us to have a heartfelt religion. Is emotion necessary in order to please God? Well, yes, there is an emotion called love. Let's look at a few passages. I want you to follow along with me as much as you can. I'm going to repeat these verses twice. But in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, That is 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Let's look at a few passages tonight. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Mm. Notice what it says. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Does God expect us to have fervent emotions? Oh, yes, He does. Fervent emotions. We need to be in contact with our emotions because he says, "I want some fervent emotions. I want you to fervently love your brethren." In First Corinthians, the sixteenth chapter, First Corinthians sixteen, and verse twenty-two, notice what it says here: "If anyone does not love the Lord, he is accursed." Mar- Mar- Maranatha, does not love the Lord? Are we supposed to have love for the Lord? Or is that supposed to call for some emotion from us? Yes, it definitely does. Is there supposed to be the emotion of hope? And yes, hope does have an emotional aspect to it. We're going to notice more about that in a moment. But notice in Romans 12 and verse 12, if you will. Romans 12 and verse 12. It says here, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Rejoicing in hope is rejoicing emotion? Yes. Is it caused by hope? Oh, yes. This is an emotion. Rejoicing is something that we are definitely supposed to have. And notice in Philippians 4, verse 4, he puts it even more specifically. Philippians chapter 4, and verse 4, uh, notice what it says. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice! Rejoice! How many times have we had someone consider us to be unauthentic Christians because when we sing a song about joy... We express no joy while singing it. They have a right to say that we're hypocrites whenever we sing about joy and we're not expressing any joy. We're not emoting any joy, if you will. Notice in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. What is this verse suggesting? It's suggesting that sometimes, whenever we are taught some passage of scripture, we it produces within us a sorrow. A sorrow. But what happens with that sorrow? We're going to notice in a minute, it produces a fruit, or it has a fruit, and that fruit is repentance. But what is the, what is the emotion that hearing that we've disobeyed God, or that God is not well pleased with us? What is the emotion that we feel? Sorrow. That's what happens sometimes. When we look into the Word of God and we see that we've not been honoring Him, it produces sorrow. Within us a sorrow because of our love for God, it produces sorrow within our hearts You know, I'm sad whenever I love my wife and I find out that what I've been trying to do for her is not pleasing to her <laughs> Or you're trying to please your husband. I fixed this favorite thing for you and, and he's not pleased you He produces some kind of sorrow within you Well, that is proper whenever we're trying to serve God and honor him and find out that we've been doing something wrong It produces sorrow, but not just a superficial sorrow, it's a sorrow that has some fruit to it, and we're gonna notice that more in a moment. But this is a proper response to God's word. I want us to get that. It's a proper response to God's word. What about the emotion of hate? Is that a God-given emotion as well? Yes, and I'm just gonna, Proverbs 8 and verse 13, the Bible says we're supposed to hate evil and wickedness and the wicked way even the Lord hates, the Bible says. There's to be the emotion of fear, Matthew 10 and verse 28. There's a place for emotion in the life and in the worship of the church, in the life of the Christian and in the worship of the church. There is a place for this. But this emotion must have a basis. It must be rooted in faith. It must be rooted in the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10 and verse 17. This requires us to use our intellectual uh, faculties in whenever addressing issues of emotion. In other words, let's be very clear about this. There's an aspect of love that is a choice. There's an aspect of love that requires obedience. God commanded in 1 John that we love one another. We make either a choice to obey or not obey. Well, Glenn, how can emotion be commanded? How can a man be commanded to love his wife, Ephesians 5? Well, it is a command. So love is a choice, isn't it? Yes, what we love is a choice. Now how we feel about that is our responsibility, as well as just an emotion. Sometimes if we don't have feelings of love for our brethren, We have to learn to develop them because to fail to do so would be disobedience. When a husband refuses to love his wife, he is being disobedient to God. When a man refuses to love God, he is refusing to be obedient to God. Whenever we do not subject our heart, soul and mind to God, we are being disobedient to God. So part of love, part of hope and part of all of these things Our choices, intellectual choices, there's a part of that within us. How we feel about things is not just an automatic response. There is a responsibility to feel certain ways about certain things. About our wife, about sin, and about these other things. Well, Glenn, that's awful tough. It's hard for me to develop that emotion. My friends, that's the whole point I'm getting at tonight. Sometimes if there is a variance in how we feel about sin or how we feel about our wife Sometimes that's evidence of disobedience in our heart and in our will Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought that maybe if you're having improper emotions, it's because of improper decisions? Or a lack of devotion You see There's that's symptomatic Whenever we don't have proper emotions, it's symptomatic of other things. Whenever we read about God's love in the Word of God, we should be moved to love Him. Notice in 1 John, the fourth chapter, this whole book is dedicated to teaching Christians, if you love God, you ought to love one another. But notice what he says here in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. By this is the love of God was was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son in the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, so also ought we to love one another. Love one another he makes some rational conclusions here. He says, listen, because of God loving us first, doesn't that bring about certain other emotions? There are certain consequences to this love? Yes. He says, if this is the way God loved us, can't we now learn what it means to love one another? Yes, we can. God God wants us to understand that if we can feel this way in this situation, we ought to learn then to transpose our understanding of this situation to another situation. If you love here, why can't you love here? And so he tells us to learn from one experience and apply it to another. Notice though, scriptural emotions, in other words, they have a foundation. They have a fruit that is born. They are not simply emotions for emotion's sake. They are emotions that have certain kind of fruits to them. Look, and this is the most important part of the lesson. I want you to listen very carefully to the next five minutes of this lesson. Listen very carefully and and take notes. Listen very carefully. The emotion of love bears fruit in obedience. Notice in John the 14th, if you have your Bibles, please open the book of John, gospel of John, John the 14th chapter and verse 15. Notice what Jesus says here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. (laughs) There it is. He says, here's the fruit. Emotion has fruit. There's a consequence to that emotion and God designed for it to bear a certain kind of fruit. Not emotion for emotion's sake, and not emotion alone. Emotion alone is just emotionalism. But true and authentic, realistic emotion, emotion has fruit in our life, has fruit. Notice what he says here. If you love God, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus goes on in this book and says, if you keep my commandments, he it is who loves me. Jesus determined that emotion by its obedience in their manner of life. Let's look at some other passages In 1 John 5 verse 3, if if we've just came from 1 John, but notice in 1 John 5 verse 3, for this is the true love of God, that we keep his commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. You know, whenever you love someone, you're not going to find His commandments to be a burden. You're not going to find His restrictions to be in a burden. You know? It's just not going to be that way. You're not going to chafe against a command that you know was given for your welfare. God loves us. He wants to give good gifts to us. God did not give us commands just to give commands. He gave us our commands for our welfare, for our benefit. God has a design in the parameters, in the barriers, and in the limits He put in our life. You know, kids like to say to their parents in their immaturity, you know, oh, you just don't want me to have any fun. You know, the parents would, they're, they're almost tempted to say, yeah, go ahead and play with the lighter. Go ahead and play with the knife. See if you can juggle them. You know, we. <laughs> Sometimes you just want to say that, the kids are so dumb. But the point is, is you know that that's immaturity on the part of the child. You say to them, no, the reason why I told you not to play with knives, you may not understand it now, but I don't want you to hurt yourself, right? Sometimes you want to tell them to go out and play in the highway. But, but, but most of all, you don't because you don't want to see him hurt. And that's why God told us that there's parameters. That's why God told us not to do certain things. It isn't because he wants us not to have fun. It's because he knows it'll hurt us. He knows it'll be harmful for us. He knows that it doesn't promote spirituality. He knows that it's not good for us eternally. And therefore, the Bible says, this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Whenever you love God, his commandments are not burdensome. So that's the fruit, if you will, of loving God. But notice the emotion of hope also that we've identified has a fruit. Notice what the Bible says in, in uh, Romans the 8th chapter and verse 24. In Romans 8 and verse 24. Notice. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Well, what is the fruit? What is the fruit of of hope, if you will? Desire with expectation, what's the fruit of that? Patience, endurance, we endure. We endure. Whenever we have hope, it helps our endurance. It helps our holding on. What about the emotion of joy in 2 Corinthians chapter 8? Notice the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Notice what it already said. I believe we've already read it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting reading verse 2. Notice. For in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor and participation of the support of the saints. And we, this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Now here, this joy that they had in their, in their lives... Mm it bore fruit in sacrifice that's the effect that was the fruit of this joy they wanted to do this and what it led them to was sacrifice to god and, and we noticed in second corinthians notice just back one chapter chapter, chapter 7 and verse 10. 10 chapter 7 and verse 10 notice it says for the sorrow that is according to the will of god produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation what is the effect of sorrow godly sorrow repentance it has an effect it has a fruit attached to it notice the emotion of hate bears with it the rejection of error in psalms 119 the bible says in verse 127 and 128 that the person who lo- who hates the uh, uh, iniquity who does not want to to do those things which do not please god that it affects them and they and they can't stand false worship and false uh, ways before god psalms 119 reading verse 127 notice therefore i love your commandments above gold yes above fine gold therefore i esteem right your precepts concerning everything i hate every false way so we don't we do not approve we do not appreciate those who teach false doctrine and those who teach error not that we don't love the person we love them as much as God does or we should, but the, we hate the fact that false doctrine is being preached. We do not approve of it. We do not endorse it. We do not give it a greeting as the, as the scripture says. Well, there's the emotion. The emotion of fear also bears fruit in departing from evil. The book, the book just flat out says that in Proverbs 16 and verse 6. The fear of the Lord Cause us to reject evil. So that God has a design for His emotions. God gave you your emotions. So both aspects are wrong. To have formalism without emotion is hypocrisy. To have emotion without it being based on the scriptures is nothing more than fleshly. It is fleshly. people who just want excitement. They want thrills. You know, in our culture, and I'm going to be very plain here, I could go, I, I have several more pages because this was an interesting study, but I'm going to wrap it up here. Let's just wrap it up. There are people who have been critical of the church in the past, saying, Oh, Glenn, you know, the church is just so dead. They just don't show any emotion. You know what? I don't defend an emotionalist an emotionless worship service. If you sing a song about joy, I hope you're singing with joy. But if you've got together and you're sorrowing with the loss of a brother, my friends, it's perfectly appropriate for us to get together and cry together and bear one another's burdens. The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, don't tell me the church doesn't have any emotion. If it doesn't, it's wrong. But at the same time, to worship emotion is just as wrong to just go after a sensory experience of hand clapping and joy and just believe that we have to roll in the aisles and we have to have all these other things, my friends, that is nothing more than fleshly excitement. That's not genuine either. Both extremes are wrong. What we need to have in the church is real and authentic worship where we combine words with authentic feelings when we sing and songs of joy are songs of joy and songs of hope are songs of hope and songs of regret are genuinely songs of self-reflection and whenever we give I want to talk more about worship but the Bible demands that whenever we give we give cheerfully not grudgingly or under compulsion That word under compulsion there doesn't mean like we're being commanded by God and therefore there must be a contradiction in scripture. That word under compulsion is talking about as if it were a tax. And they hated paying taxes back then. It was like extortion. And you know what feelings of extortion feel like. It's whenever a spyware company infects your computer to sell its spyware. That's extortion. You get irritated at that. You know what that's like. But the Bible says whenever you give to the Lord, that's not the supposed to be attitude, You. In other words, we're happy, we're thrilled, we're chill for that we have been blessed so that we can promote the cause of Christ. We have been blessed so that we can support the preaching of the gospel to the world. I'm thrilled to have a job so that I can serve God with what He's blessed me with. I'm thrilled to be able to help the cause of Christ in this way and to help out poor brethren. I am cheerful. I am happy and thrilled. But God says God loves a cheerful giver. And whenever it comes to our songs, they need to be appropriate. When it comes to our prayers, how many times I literally have been ashamed in a service where I have bought brethren and the dismissal prayer was said in one breath. This person isn't talking to God, they're talking at God. And it is not appropriate and it is not reverent to spit out phrases that you don't know and you don't understand. And to talk and shoot something at god how ashamed we should be to pray so repetitively and so inappropriately that we just want to get it over with and see how quickly we can get through a prayer or how quickly we can get through a song shame on us for thinking that way let us be real let us be authentic and whenever we reverently approach god We need to be aware and talk to him as if God were present and be humble before him and be able to thank God for what's happened and what's going on. My friends, teach your children to pray appropriately, to pray properly. Whenever it comes to teaching, we're not just supposed to preach. We're supposed to preach the word. Not just preach, preach the word. There's some people say, man, he just preached. He preached, all right, but they didn't (laughs) preach the word. We're supposed to preach the word. Whenever we sing, we're supposed to sing appropriately. Pray, pray appropriately. Give, give cheerfully. And whenever we take the communion, I don't know if anything that's more emphasized in 1 Corinthians 11 than to do so in a proper manner. Examining yourself. Because to fail to do so will eat and drink judgment to himself. Now, brethren, let's just be real about this for a moment. People who visit our assemblies do see quickly how we sing, how we pray, and how we teach. And if they don't come back, if they don't come back, we need to ask ourselves, is it because they've seen a disconnect from real and authentic emotions from what we're doing? Both sides are wrong. Formalism is wrong if you will in that sense and emotionalism is wrong The Bible says whenever you approach God Don't just do it with your lips with your heart far from him Serve God with all of your heart soul mind and strength when you sing a song sing it like you mean it And if you can't sing it like you mean it don't sing it don't lead it There are some songs that I think are inappropriate we need not, uh, there's, there's one song that I think sounds sarcastic, you know? Just wait till you see me in my new home. That sounds arrogant. Just wait. It's like there's na-na-na all the way through it. Just wait till you see me in my new home. I just don't like that song. That's personal. And if brethren choose to lead it, they can lead it with spirit and understanding. I don't sing it whenever somebody leads it. I just don't. You have yours. <laughs> I have mine. And I hope, I hope you're not the author of the song or we're going to have words after it's over. <laughs> Just because it's a song doesn't mean we have to sing it. But I'll tell you what. We need to think more about the songs we pick. Do I hear an amen? We need to think about the way we pray. Amen? Because to do otherwise is to dishonor our God. It's disrespectful to God, brethren, to offer him in sincere worship. So tonight, church, we can't talk about change without talking about our emotion as well. And yes, we need some emotion, but not more for more's sake. We don't need more emotion just to be emotional and to be sensory and to have some overload and to have some kind of excitement. No. We need real worship. That's what we need. The real thing. Tonight, if you're coming to God, why don't you make some choices? You may have to make some choices about your love for God. Do you love God enough to commit to Him tonight? Does this emotion have its fruit? Does it have a fruit? Does your love for God lead you to obey Him tonight? It needs to. It needs you to lead to a commitment. It needs you to lead to repentance. If you're, maybe you're feeling sorrow tonight over some of the things that you've done or the way you've behaved, perhaps that sorrow needs to lead to a change. Repentance. Maybe you have joy tonight. Maybe you understand for the first time that God wants you to be saved and he desires for you to be saved and you obey him and you're thankful that you have the opportunity to obey him tonight. Express your joy and obedience tonight, but let that emotion have its proper fruit. God designed that emotion have fruit, have effect, proper effect in our life. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at Our service times are Sundays at 10:30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.